Good morning, everyone. Um, we're coming towards the end of our May Mission Month, and as you heard this morning, we have already reached our target. So I decided this morning that uh, perhaps a little bit of celebration was in order. So I come bearing gifts this morning. Two lucky people are going to have a very special morning tea. I've got cakes in here. So I want you to take a look on the front of your seats, the front legs of your seats. If you have a little yellow sticky dot, then these gifts that I bring belong to you. And you'll be enjoying a very special morning tea. So if you found a sticky dot, maybe put your hand up. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Brian. And Barbara, well done. You'll be enjoying a very special morning tea. We'll leave those there for you later um, while we have a look at our passage for today. So I've been looking forward to this morning for a few months because this is a very special passage. Uh, in my mind, it is some of the best of the Apostle Paul. It's high theology, but it's also very practical. And the thing I love most about this particular passage is that the more you look at it, the more there is to see in this particular passage. Now, as we know, Paul is regarded as the greatest missionary who ever lived. And there's a whole book in the Bible detailing all of the things that he has done in terms of church planting and discipling and mentoring and life-changing exploits. And then a great deal of the rest of the New Testament consists of letters that he's written to all of these fledgling churches that were established. So I think as we come to the end of Mission Month, it is good for us to try and unlock some of what Paul thinks about mission. Now our passage this morning comes from the Apostle's letter to the Colossian church. And he wrote this letter while he was in prison. And the Colossian church was not a church that Paul had established, nor do we believe it was one that he had ever visited. The church was started by a man named Epaphras, and he had recently visited Paul. And on that visit, he had told Paul about all of the good things that were happening in that church, but he also confided in him of some of the dangers that the church was being exposed to. And just for a bit of background, the, the town of Colossae sits right there. It's about 160 kilometres from Ephesus. You can see Ephesus on the map there. Both of these towns or cities sit in what we know of today as Turkey. And Colossae sat on the, the Lycus Valley and it was a major east-west trade route. And so you had people from all over the place traveling through this town and they brought with them all sorts of different ideas, all sorts of different philosophies, all sorts of different beliefs. And it's difficult to gauge exactly what the threat was that Paul is addressing uh, in this letter that he wrote to the church, but it seems most likely that rather than one great big obvious danger that was threatening to wipe them out like a tsunami, 
that the church was more in a sort of situation where the tide was slowly coming in and rising. And the end result for the tsunami or the tide rising is the same, that people drown. But in one instance, there's an obvious and immediate threat, and in the other, it's a bit more difficult to point to what's actually happening. Life just goes on, adjustments get made, and before you realise it, you're out of your depth and drowning. So some of the things that Paul talks about, he mentions a hollow and deceptive philosophy. He mentions wisdom and knowledge. This is something that he also talked about to the Corinthian church. He talks about harsh treatment of the body. Now, we're not exactly sure what that was, but it seems that perhaps people were being persuaded to do sort of rituals or, you know, um, could have been you know, starving themselves or damaging themselves in some way. Uh, there are references that indicate that perhaps some were being persuaded back to the necessity of circumcision. Uh, there are references to legalism, observance of strict food laws and festivals, the, the Jewish festivals. And there is also talk in the letter about angel worship and false humility. So in all of these things, the people were being told a whole lot of stuff to try and bring about superior spirituality. And Paul writes to address all of this by telling them that Christ was sufficient. And he points to the centrality of Christ and the completeness of his saving work. So if we glance through chapter 1, of the, the letter to the Colossian church, once you get past Paul's greeting and his prayer for the churches, verses 12 to 23 are all about Christ, his divinity, his role in creation, his relationship to the Father, his relationship to the church, his work of reconciliation on our behalf. And then we get to our passage for today. So if you've got your Bibles, um, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. <coughs> he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So what are your first impressions there? What is Paul on about? He fills up in his flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Surely this would have to be one of the most shocking and potentially most confusing statements in the Bible. Some might even go so far as to call it blasphemy, 
to suggest that the saving work of Christ on the cross was anything less than perfect and complete. And those people might just be right if, if indeed, that is what Paul was trying to suggest. But, of course, that's not what he was trying to suggest here. And so the key question for us today is, what is he trying to suggest? What is still lacking? And in this respect, John Piper is very helpful in pointing us towards the only other passage in which Paul uses very similar language. And by looking at that passage, we can perhaps get a better understanding of what he was actually on about here. He uses almost an identical phrase in another one of his letters, a letter written to the Philippian church. Now, he also wrote this letter during his time in prison, but this one was written to a church that he knew very well. It was a church that he had planted and a church that he dearly loved. And one of his primary motivations for writing to this church was to thank them for a gift that had been sent to him. Evidently, the church in Philippi had raised some support for Paul and they sent a man named Epaphroditus to him to deliver the gift. And along the way, Epaphroditus succumbed to illness and he very nearly died, but he eventually recovered and he was able to get the gift from the Philippian church to Paul. And now Paul prepares to send Epaphroditus back to them. And as he does, he writes these words to the church in Philippi. He says, so receive him, being Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, there's no suggestion anywhere in the letter to the Philippian church that there was anything substandard or incomplete about the gift that they'd prepared for the Apostle Paul. Paul himself says of their gift, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Their gift was more than enough to meet his needs. And in that respect, their service to him was complete. But for as long as Paul didn't know about their gift, their efforts could be of no encouragement to him. And for as long as he didn't have their gift, it was of no benefit to him. So Epaphroditus completed what was lacking by taking their gifts, which were already perfect and complete, and delivering them to the Apostle Paul so that they could be used by him and so that the efforts of the Philippian church would be a great encouragement to him. So when Paul writes that Epaphroditus completed what was lacking, he's not having a go at the Philippian church. He's not saying that their efforts weren't good enough or that their gifts weren't good enough. He's just saying that they were incomplete until they reached him because they could be of no benefit to him. 
until they fulfilled their intended purpose. And so in this respect, Epaphroditus represented the Philippian church to Paul. The gift wasn't from Epaphroditus. Presumably most of the church, or at least many of them, had contributed to this gift. But he played an essential role in getting it to the Apostle Paul. And by his actions, he made their gift known to him. To understand this one phrase, complete what is still lacking, I think is for us to begin to understand our role in Christian mission. And it stems from an understanding of who we are in Christ. Paul is not saying that there was anything incomplete or lacking in the saving work of Christ on the cross. We know that our sins are completely forgiven the moment we repent and believe. It is not possible for them to be more forgiven. So we don't labour to save souls we labour to connect them with the one who can. That saving work has already been done. What is lacking is for that saving work to be made known or to be delivered to non-believers. It's a bit like a gift waiting to be delivered to the intended recipients. But Paul's not saying here that we are just Delivery people, you know, you have Uber and you have Uber Eats and this is kind of Uber salvation. We just deliver it to people. It's already made, we just deliver it. That, I think, would be a really empty way of looking at mission and it's not how Paul presents himself here. And to get our heads around perhaps what Paul understands about his role in all of this, we need to try and understand him and to understand what shaped him. And the key defining moment in his life, of course, was that moment on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus. Luke provides three accounts of that same event in the record of Acts. And all three of them are slightly different, but they have in common these words of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, there's no record of Saul ever having physically persecuted Jesus during his time on earth. Certainly in the lead up to his encounter on the road to Damascus, it was the disciples that Saul was threatening. It was the disciples that he was having thrown in prison. And it was the disciples that he was breathing out murderous threats against. Jesus had long since ascended into heaven. Yet here was Jesus in no uncertain terms stating that Paul's persecution was directed at him. Here was Jesus identifying himself with the believers so much so that what was being done to them, he could say, was being done to him. Their bodies were like an extension of his own body. And so it's not hard to see where Paul gets his body of Christ image from. 
He didn't make up this as an illustration to help us all understand what church is like. Jesus gave it to him. And it was how Jesus perceived the church as an extension of his own body. Paul thought he had persecuted the disciples. Jesus said, you have persecuted me. And so these disciples that Paul was persecuting, they weren't just some kind of delivery vehicle for the gospel. They were united with Christ and they were sharing in his sufferings. So Epaphroditus was not just the delivery boy of the Philippian church because he was part of them and he was able to physically represent them to Paul. He was able to show them the love of that church for him. And we likewise are not called to be just delivery boys or girls for Christ. Go and make disciples then is not merely a call to deliver the gospel message to the world. It is a call to participation with Christ. We are part of the body of Christ and we physically represent him to the world. We show the love of Christ to the world and nowhere will this be more evident than when we endure hardship so that others might know of his love when we're willing to endure hardship or personal suffering or when we are willing to put ourselves out so that others might know Jesus, that's when we fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And when we see it in this way, the sufferings of the head, which is Christ, and the members of the body, which is the rest of us, the church, then they are collectively called the sufferings of Christ. And this is the first of several wonderful mysteries in this passage. So what Epaphroditus was to the Philippian church and to their gift, we are to Christ and his great gift of salvation. We are the physical representation of Christ. Now, we aren't all walking, talking, little individual Christs because we all fall a long way short of that. But we represent him. We represent him and his great gift of salvation to the world when we tell of his great love or when we demonstrate it to the world. And you all know what it means to be a representative. If you think about people that represent us, if you think about a lawyer representing people in court, or people that we elect to represent us in council elections, or a power of attorney that we ask to make decisions for us. All of these means of representation are far more effective when the person actually takes time to get to know us, to get to know our case, to get to know our wishes to get to know the issues that we face. And so that's one of the reasons why the number one priority for every Christian must be a deep and personal relationship with Christ. So that when we re-present Christ to the world, what we present to them, whether in word or whether in action, 
is authentic. And we move on. Verse 26 describes a mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations. And when we think of the word mystery today, we think of something that's difficult or impossible to understand or explain. And there is an element of that here. But the word mystery in Greco-Roman times referred to something quite different. It referred to a religious school of thought. And the teachings and ritual practices of these religious schools were shrouded in secrecy and they were only known to initiates. They were never revealed to outsiders. That was all part of the attraction of joining one of these groups. For example, the Eleusinian Mysteries were a prestigious secret society that operated around the first century AD. And new candidates went through a one-year process of initiation. They called it like a spiritual odyssey. And it culminated in them drinking a brew containing various hallucinogens in total darkness in an underground amphitheater before dancing around a huge fire where they supposedly attained immortality. But it wasn't just these secret societies that had this element of mystery and exclusivity, exclusivity about them. Some of the Jews that were anticipating God acting to restore the fortunes of his people expressed this in terms of his secret plans. And what Paul says here is no. This mystery is not like that. His plan is not secret. His plan involves sharing his glory with his people. And you might say, well, doesn't Isaiah tell us that God will share his glory with nobody? How does he plan to do that? Well, his plan is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So for now, we have a taste of that glory through Christ indwelling in us, and it will be fully revealed later when we're presented perfect before Christ. Christ in him is why Paul works to present everyone perfect in Christ. Because to the extent to which he allows the Holy Spirit to transform his mind and his will and his intellect and his emotions, to that extent, his own mind, will, intellect and emotions will align with God's stated purpose or mission, which we're told in verse 22 is to reconcile people to himself through Christ. To this end, he fills up in his flesh that which was lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. And finally, we must never forget that Christ in him is also how Paul was able to fill up in his flesh what was still lacking. He didn't labour in his own strength. Verse 29 says, To this end I labour, struggling with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Christ in me, Christ in you. We are a glorious divine mystery. It's difficult to get our heads around. 
Christ dwelling within us by his Holy Spirit and our being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You know, every May, without fail in this church, you will hear the Great Commission preached in one form or another, and mostly we focus on the going or the making of disciples. Sometimes we talk about baptising and teaching obedience to the commands of Jesus, but sometimes we forget that there was an extra line in there, the tagline. Don't forget about the tagline. Matthew 28, the end of verse 20 says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is not an optional add-on. And these are not kindly words of Jesus given to his disciples to reassure them. The tagline is the most important part because it describes the who and the why and the how of Christian mission. It is Jesus living in us who chooses to work through us so that in this way he might make himself known to people who are living thousands of years the other side of the cross. It is a promise. It is the promise of a divine mystery, Christ in me and Christ in you. And it happened for the first time at Pentecost when that same spirit which God had anointed Jesus for his messianic ministry was poured out on the disciples who were gathered there. What happened that day changed them forever. Disciples who had only weeks earlier doubted and denied and run away became bold ambassadors for Christ. They filled up in their flesh what was still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions and they did it for the sake of his body, which is the church. And it's been happening ever since. Every time someone accepts Christ as their Lord and Saviour, this divine mystery is realised again and again and again. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Did you realise that? It is 50 days since Easter Sunday. And we remember that day when the divine mystery became a lived reality and the church became the body of Christ, empowered to fill up in our flesh what is lacking. So I think you know what's already lacking, what is still lacking in terms of these gifts that I have here. As far as I'm concerned, they're perfect and complete. If I tried to add some more flour or perhaps ice them a little bit better, chances are I'd only destroy them. But for as long as they're separated from the people for whom they were intended, they're of very little use. So, of course, what we need is someone who will stand up and say, I will go. So Jeff is going to stand up and Jeff is going to take one of these gifts and he's going to take it to Barbara. Thank you. Take that one to Barbara. She's just right there. Lucky Barbara. But the other one, 
I, this one just looks so good, you know. Just like, anyway. That's really good. That's really good. And that's what we do, isn't it? When we aren't willing to go. It's funny when it's cakes and cream donuts, but it's not so funny when it's people's eternal destinies. You wouldn't do this to a friend, sit and eat the gift that you'd already given them while they sat there watching you. And yet we think it's okay to do that with the greatest gift that has ever been given. We're happy to keep it to ourselves and enjoy the love of Jesus and his forgiveness on us while we watch our friends go about their everyday life and we know what their eternal destiny could be. Don't worry, Brian, you haven't completely missed out. <laughs> I've saved you another one. So the question for each one of us today as I finish is, who is it that you're going to tell? Who in your circle is missing out because you're happy to keep Jesus to yourself? Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for this wonderful mystery of Christ in us. Help us to grasp the fullness of what that means this morning, that you dwell by your spirit with each one of us. We are the body of Christ and we represent you here on earth. Oh, Father, help us to submit to your Holy Spirit's reign in our lives. Let our will be your will and our thoughts be your thoughts. Strengthen and equip us as we seek to represent Christ in what we say and what we do. May we be a faithful representation of your love for all humanity. Amen.